This is a Harper Guys production. The following will contain adult subject matter and may not be suitable for all audiences. Can you imagine reporting your own murder? Welcome to the gallows. I'm Jake. With me is always my co-host Adam. Yo. And tonight we're doing a current event. The gentleman that was executed in this case was actually executed just yesterday. So when this is released on Friday the 17th of January, it will have been two days ago. That's unprecedented. Yes. So there took a little bit of investigating clear up until the uh, until the very moment that we are coming on here. But I think that it's relevant to take a look at something when it happens sometimes. Well, it's kind of also interesting that you have said that you would like to maybe start doing some more recent uh, situations only because there's more information. Correct. And so that you don't get any more. This one's... <laughs> This one's still uh, kicking. Yeah, this one's hot off the press. This is actually going to be the first execution in the United States this year. In 2020, there are 41 other cases that are supposed to go to termination this year throughout five states. This one's going to be in Texas, which isn't a big surprise to a lot of people. They are the leaders in the clubhouse every year. They are actually second this year as far as ones that are scheduled, but that is only because Ohio has had the moratorium to where they're getting backed up in Ohio. So Texas is probably still going to end up being the leader for 2020, and they're getting the first head start here. Well, that doesn't surprise me either. Um, do we know what number? 1,513. 1,513. So lucky number 13. Who will be the lucky 1,515? Well, I'll tell you that in just a second, but before we get to that piece of shit, the victims in this case are Rhoda Gardner, Rhoda's unborn child, which we will get to in a little bit. And then Tammy Dawn Gardner, who is actually Tammy Dawn Tate before she was married. So to kind of go back in time, John Stephen Gardner simply was the type of guy that could not handle the fact that a woman would leave him. Rejection was something that he did not deal with on any level. He was about six foot tall, 170 pounds, in very good athletic shape as a young man. Very, very well-spoken. And he was the son of a Baptist minister, and he just had no problems catching the eye of a woman. As you will see as a theme throughout this, the women that were in his life, he, he definitely had a proclivity for good-looking women. 
what is interesting is that the reaction that he has whenever he is rejected is actually labeled as a diagnosed a mental d- disease, uh, something uh, like that. A disorder? Yeah, a mental disorder. That's the word. Thank you very much. That's called abandonment rage. Wow, I've never heard of that one. Yeah, it's actually, it was diagnosed for the first time officially uh, by the Boston Medical Review, 1999. So it's not that old as far as what it is. I mean, it, there's such a thing as separation anxiety. Yeah. This sounds like completely other side of the tracks it's a it seems like it's an extreme version from what i could read on it well it's, so, it's it's inducing rage yeah so the rage actually started when john was just a child his father john senior who i mentioned was a baptist minister he was well known for the strict enforcement of of biblical doctrine within his parishioners so if they had questions on anything always what does the bible say to the letter of the law no compromising on things. Uh, he had no problem at all excommunicating people from their church if they were not following the rules to, to the T. This led into an even harsher set of circumstances for his wife and his children. John was the oldest of the four children, John Stephen Gardner. And he really did take the brunt of the punishment. He was the first one coming up. He was the easiest one to start with. The dad was off of his rocker a little bit to start off with. It was it was confirmed by other siblings and eventually by the mom that John Sr. would give each of the children a beating on Saturday afternoons if they hadn't done anything earlier in the week to warrant getting their beating. So basically, just to keep them regimented and keep them in line, whether you've earned it or not, you're going to catch a beating once a week. I thought you were going to say, like, if they haven't done anything around the house to help out, they're going to get their ass whooped. No. No, this is just, eh, if I had no reason earlier, you're going to get it. Yes. Jesus. So what ended up happening as time went on were his sisters started to figure out the happier they made dad, the less they actually got. He didn't stop. But what might be one or two wax or one or two whips with a belt for the girls might be 20 for John. Because John was not the one that was just going to bend. He would follow the rules on stuff, but he was not the type of person that we'll find out that's just going to cry uncle, you know, and do whatever he can to make somebody happy in order to lessen what he gets. Or Brown knows daddy, so he's easier on you. Exactly. The other part of this is that John's mom would definitely take her share of the physical and the mental abuse. She would report that this happened before she was ever even pregnant with their first child, that it was not long after they were married. At one point in time, she had had this conversation with her son. At this point, he was pretty far off the reservation, but it was something that stuck with him that he had actually discussed in an interview years later. About the age of 10, and this was a year that actually resonated with him quite quite well, was going to church regularly with the family, like always. And one day at church, he had the Bible and he turned the page as his dad was reading and he was crinkling the paper right in the middle of the church service. Dad stops like he's the preacher. He's up there in front of everybody stops what he's doing, takes his son out into the hallway, which is right outside of the sanctuary and lights his kid up just going to town on him with a belt. And it sounds like it was for a couple minute period of time. This wasn't, Hey boy, get it together. Just lighten him up. He comes back in. Dad goes back to preaching like nothing just happened. Nothing changed at all. 
But what made this moment super significant is John comes back in, tears in his eyes. Obviously, he's hurting, you know, from just getting a beaten. And it was the look on his mom's face of disappointment in him. Like, how could you interrupt your dad and create a moment like this instead of putting it on to the father? Like, that's how he would describe it later. Is it complete bullshit from a, from a psychopath? Maybe it is. But I can see to where that moment would resonate with me if me getting my ass whipped by my dad constituted my mom being disappointed in me. Sure. It just seemed like a kind of a crazy thing. It's messed up for sure. So from this point on, he completely loathes his mother. And he decides he's going to do anything that he can to get out. He starts keeping his distance. While he's in high school, he spends time away. He comes home. He threatens his father with physical altercations to where somewhere around the age of 16, he stops getting the beatings. It's just basically a ride it out situation at this point for his house. As soon as he graduated, he headed straight for the army. Some would think that that would make sense, right? You have a hard home life. Not the first person that's had a difficult home life that's gone to the military. So he signs up for four years in the military. Would come to find out that this would actually be one of the worst things for him. When you go from being regimented all the time to being regimented and screamed at all of the time, only you're not getting the physical beatings from it, it still doesn't help a lot. The fact that he was already damaged and struggled with this made him somebody that was easy to be picked on from reports that came in from other guys that served in the army with him. He actually had a psychiatric evaluation after his four years on his way out. And on the way out, they said that they recommended that he get involved in counseling immediately because he was mentally and emotionally unstable. You need to see some treatment. Right. So we got red flag number one coming out in 1978. I mean, that's, that's crazy that somebody's identified it this early. But either way, he gets out and he goes to work as a painter. He finds a local company that he starts working for. He's in Laurel, Mississippi at this time. And things are going fairly well for him. He has his own place. He's kind of starting to, to get his own feet underneath him in this world. And at the, age of, uh, at the age of 24, he starts dating a 16-year-old local girl named Rhoda. She would actually end up becoming his first wife. And at 5'10", uh, with sandy blonde hair, she was considered by everybody that talked about it absolutely beautiful. Just tall, good looking, dark hair, always had a tan. You know, being from the South, I can see how that would be the case. You know, she would later say uh, to some friends of hers that the thing that attracted her to him immediately was that he complimented her on how long her legs were. And it was the thing that she was the most self-conscious about because of how tall she was. And she was kind of an introvert to where she wasn't used to having people, especially men, like take an interest in her to where she fell for him immediately. I mean, the age of 16 is an impressionable age. You know, you have an older guy. He's got his life together seemingly. He's got a good job, you know, to where they're together. And it seems like everything is going extremely well. Uh, in 1982... They decided to marry right there in the town of Loyal, Laurel, but they got married because she was pregnant. So when John learned of this pregnancy, he was outraged. His father, being a Baptist minister, demanded of his son that he get married immediately. Old school way of doing things. It doesn't happen that way quite as often anymore, even though it still does. But he said that, that that's happening. Well, he did not want to be a father in any shape or form at this point in his life. And he just began berating Rhoda and physically abusing her like there are documents that show that he would slug her in the stomach or in the back 
basically it sounded like a weak attempt to try to get her to have a miscarriage or something along those lines. She became somebody around town that everybody knew. We know she was a local. She would be seen with black eyes, bruising, and there's even a couple incidences where they marked that there were cuts on her arms that they thought looked kind of like defensive wounds. Again, these are just hearsay reports of what people in the town had seen, but people knew that something was going on. On December 18th, 1982, John was in the middle of one of his moments, and he's slapping and screaming at Rhoda while they're driving down the road. She finally decides that she's had enough and it's time to fight back, and she smacks him in the face. This immediately sends him into a rage. He pulls over into the parking lot of a small convenience store, gets out, pulls her out of the car onto the ground, and shoots her three times in the neck, shoulder, and abdomen. I mean, this is his wife that smacked him because he was smacking her. So he shot her three times. Jesus. I mean, that's obviously off the deep end a little bit there, but what he does next is a little bit peculiar. So he takes her, he scoops her back up, puts her back into their car and drives her to the hospital. So I don't know if he had a moment of, Holy shit, what did I just do? Or, or what, what the, what the sick thought in his head was at that moment. She gets to the hospital and they find out that none of the wounds are going to be life-threatening, but the shot to her neck actually clipped her spinal cord, leaving her as a paraplegic to where she's in a chair. That's not going to change. She's in the hospital within a couple of weeks. She loses the baby. Again, that's now you're in a wheelchair for the rest of your life and you've lost your baby. I can't even imagine what that's got to be like at the age of 18. I mean, she had just turned 18, right? Oh my God. So the very next day after the shooting, John turns himself in to, to the authorities. And on May 3rd of 1983, so we're talking about six months later, he served, he's given an eight-year prison sentence for aggravated assault. That aggravated assault, shooting somebody three times, is considered aggravated assault by some crackpot. Well, I mean, in to, if that would have happened today, he would be charged for the death of the baby. Well, interesting point. So a month after he sentenced in June of 1983, Rhoda actually had to have another procedure done due to the complications from losing the baby. While she was in the middle of having this procedure done, she would go into cardiac arrhythmia, which would lead to cardiac arrest, and they couldn't revive her. So she ended up dying on the operating tire table. So it seems incredible to me that given these circumstances, she would have never have been in that operating room and she never would have lost her baby had she not been shot. But under Mississippi law, because she was actually released from the hospital after being shot, went home, came back in for another procedure. It doesn't qualify as murder. So it's like they separated it. Right. And they determined that the age of the baby when the, when she lost the baby was 14 weeks and old law, not in place anymore, but old law, baby had to be at 28 weeks before it was counted as a murder. So you basically just killed two people and you get eight years for it. Again, this is to me, this is the first big fumble in this case, you know? So, so far you've been labeled crazy by the military and now you've basically killed two people and you get an eight year prison term for it. Right. I mean, I've heard crazier things, I guess, but that's a pretty good start. So he goes to prison. He acclimates to prison life very quickly. Like I said, he's got a very good personality. People enjoy being around him. He kind of thrives in the prison environment. He actually starts getting mail. 
which I, I don't know if every prisoner gets mail or just every prisoner that shoots a woman, but she, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how these guys get all of these followers. I mean, you, it's, it's crazy. You've got mail. Right. So he gets a letter from a lady named Margaret Westmoreland. And it was a supportive letter. You know, I hope you're doing okay in there. I'm sorry for the tragic things that happened in your life, blah, blah, blah. Well, it wasn't long before it turned romantic. She sent a picture. He thought that she was good looking. The whole thing got started from there. Within just a few months of his release in 1985. So he would spend only two of those eight years in prison. Two years. Good behavior. Did he find his jailhouse Jesus? Uh, not yet, but foreshadowing, he finds jailhouse Jesus. <laughs> so he's keeping up with that theme. I think we're all but one have found jailhouse Jesus so far for all the cases that we've done. So within just a few months, they're married and he moves in with her and her two, her two children. She would go on to say that immediately after their nuptials, everything changed. Instead of it being a relationship like, Hey, what do you want to do this weekend? Hey, what do you want to do? He became super possessive about everything about her and actually treated her like he owned her instead of it being a marriage. She was no longer allowed to see any of her friends. He made her begin to dress extremely conservatively, which it doesn't sound like she dressed provocatively. She just was somebody that was proud of who who she was. She enjoyed, you know, you're in the South. You're not going to be wearing wool all the time. You know what I mean? Skirts, cami tops, stuff like that. It doesn't seem crazy to me to dress like that. Apparently, it was all long sleeves, long dresses, stuff like this. Probably from some basis in his conservative Baptist background. I don't really know. Another thing that became problematic is that she was somebody that was known to have a big personality. Like, you know, that person that you can always hear in a room and they've always got one of those laughs, but it wasn't the obnoxious. It was always a big laugh that like, if she was laughing, other people would be laughing and just a joy to have around. An intoxicating laugh. Exactly. And her friends really loved having her be with them and they would go out on occasion like friends do, you know, go out for some drinks after work, whatever they were into. Well, he decided that, no, 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 you're not going to get a babysitter and go out. And she had even invited him to go with him. And he said, no, I don't want to be part of your friend group and going out and drinking like that, which he would later find out that he actually had a drinking problem. He just didn't want to be hanging out with his wife drinking, which I found that to be incredibly weird. If you're somebody that enjoys drinking and you have a wife, if you and your wife can drink together, those can be some very good times. Amen. I mean, I just thought that that was kind of a strange way of looking at it. He actually started accusing her of being slutty and unfaithful. Like that was the reason that she actually wanted to go out and be away from him. And he could not let that behavior go on. Margaret sort of tried to stand up for herself a little bit and tried to rationalize things, you know, keep things smoothed over. Like, Hey, we're just going to go out for a couple hours. We're just going to have a couple drinks. It's not going to be a big deal. And all that did was piss him off worse. Well, sure. And, and, and while she's out, he's probably stewing and, and brewing and just thinking of, well, she's out doing this and that. Oh yeah. So he turns onto the children and he starts threatening to harm Margaret and her children. Now, at this point, Stephen is six. He, he's the little boy and his older sister, Becky, is 13. If you can hurt a 16 and a 13 year old, you're a dick no matter who you are. So I was really like, wow. So this is we're going to go from women to children here. You know, so, so it sounds like uh, everything's coming full circle here. Yeah. So there was even one one crazy moment that he had where she was threatening that she was going to go out drinking. And he told her that when she returned home, that he would bound her to a chair while he skinned her children alive in front of her and then broke her neck. Good grief. That's that's not I hate you. That's a formulated plot to kill you and your children. 
when I read that, I was like, wow, how do you not get out in that situation? I, I'm not trying to put anything onto Margaret. I don't mean it that way. But that's got to be the reddest of red flags. Like, this cannot continue to go on like this, I right? Mean, maybe the fact that it was so over the top, she thought, oh, it's just a bunch of bullshit. He's just threatening, making threats. Maybe. I think it goes deeper than that. She basically feared for her life at this point. I think that that was the moment where she just was like, wow, this is not good. Well, this is also about the same time that in order to try to get to her and kind of test the limits, he started abusing Becky, the 13-year-old daughter. He would sit and he would rub her thighs while she sat in the living room in front of her brother and in front of her mom and tell her about how good it felt to kill Rhoda. Like, imagine the creepy factor of that, of being in the same room and witnessing that. I can't even. And he would whisper little sentences to her like, your mom's going to be next if you ever try to do anything to me. Classic douchebag. I mean, that's not classic douchebag. That's classic psychopath. That's what I mean. People that, that take advantage of young, young kids and say, if you tell your parents, I'll kill all of you. I mean, come right. On. So this went on from him rubbing her thighs to where he would randomly kiss her on the mouth. He would just grab her and kiss her on the mouth and then make a look to his wife like, what are you going to do about it? Just being complete pervy pants to the end. So, that, so now we've got pedophilia action. Right. So there were even instances where he would pin her in a corner and rub himself up against her and actually like force her hand onto his junk to make her rub on him. Yeah, this is no good. No. Now, one of the things that I will say is that Becky was smart enough to do just enough with enough resistance to keep it from going all the way to where she was able to stop herself from being forcibly raped. She kept herself at distances, made sure that she was scarce a lot of the time, you know, not locked in confined areas with him. It was a smart way of being about it for 13 and being in an impossible situation. Well, everything came to a head in 1988, John came home drunk and had been stewing about something, walks into the house right there in their kitchen and cold cocks Becky, 13 years old, boom, right hand straight to the face. She actually hits her head on the countertop, hits it again on the way to the ground, knocked out unconscious. So her mom loses her mind at this point, gets her, scooped her up, takes her to the hospital. She gets 78 stitches. 78 stitches. Like, that ain't joking around right there. Good grief. Like, that is laid open. And she actually stayed in the hospital for two days just to make sure that everything was okay. A you know? serious head trauma. Serious head trauma. So, at this point, Margaret says, you know what? I'm done. I'm putting my foot down. It's time to go. She told John when she got home the day after the, the incident, she came home to get a change of clothes for her and for her daughter. She told him to get the hell out and that she had already called police, and that they had a warrant out for his arrest. So immediately, John disappeared. He left the house immediately for fear of being arrested, right? So Margaret was hoping, hey, this should be the end of this. He should be gone for good at this point. Not quite that easy. I thought you were going to say when she told him that he was going to flip his lid and kill her right there. He flipped his lid, but not right there. So the next day, so this is two days now removed from it happening, Daughter gets out of the hospital, gets her home. Her mom comes over to sit with her daughter. It's time for her to go back to work. Somebody's got to be making money. This is not FMLA time. She's not getting time paid off for this. And now with her husband being gone, she's going to need every bit of money she can get. You know, she believes that he's gone. No problem. 
So she goes to work early in the afternoon and she gets out of her car and he's right there with a knife, forces her back into the car and tells her to drive. So then he starts directing her all over town. There was a cemetery where they had gone and visited her grandmother's grave. There were restaurants where they had eaten together. There was a newsstand store where they would go and they would buy their papers and sit and have coffee some mornings. I mean, it sounds like there's some elements of their life that are actually normal when he's not freaking out and saying crazy things and beating his wife. That's not me calling him normal. But to him, these were the sentimental things that made sense, right? So... This had been going on for about 15 minutes, and she sees a cop. So Margaret instantly gasses it, going right past the cop. So what do you think happens next? On come the lights, and now we got a cop coming behind him. So kudos to Margaret. That's that's balls right there. That's some quick goat thinking. Right. So she takes off, and he tells her, he said, if you pull over, I'm going to stab you right in the throat. You're never going to make it out of this car. So this goes on for like 45 minutes, reaching speeds over 100 miles an hour. We've got multiple cop cars that end up joining the chase as it goes. After 45 minutes, Margaret looked at him and said, fuck you. Put the car park, jumped out of the car, literally as it was stopping moving, put her hands up. They told her to lay on the ground. Guns drawn. I mean, that fast to where he had no choice but to give up in that moment. So... Way to go, Margaret, all the way right there. Wow. You were messing up for a while with the way that things were going with your kids, but finally, enough was enough. You took care of your daughter. You put your own life on the line, and you got to the point where it was like, it's going to be you or me, buddy. So I got to give her a lot of credit for the way she handled the situation. Yeah. I mean, stopping that car, I mean, that's the next 15 seconds of your life could change forever if you have any life left after that at all. So I was I was amazed to see that kind of courage in a moment like that where you got to be cl- is, clearly scared. This is the first story in 11 episodes that or 12 episodes now that we've actually had somebody do something smart. Right. I, I thought it was awesome when I was reading it. It was like as you're reading through this, it's like, yeah, you're like you're cheering for her. You know, like way right. to go, Margaret. So instantly he's arrested, gets put in jail. I mean, from the scene, because he had the six years that was suspended, they knew that that was coming down the pipe. Right. Well, they also had the warrant that was out for his assault from the day before. Sure. So they had that part covered. What was pretty terrible, I thought, though, is they couldn't get him for the kidnapping or for the high-speed chase because the knife was in the car. Right. It had his fingerprints on it, but there was nothing that could prove that she didn't go with him willingly from that situation. There's nothing that could prove that he said that. Right. They basically, they came out and gave a statement after the whole thing was over. They basically said, look, we felt like it was a really flimsy case. That would be a waste of time and money to try to get a couple years added on to this, knowing that he was going to go back for the entire time. I also didn't like that. They only ended up giving him an additional five months for the assault. So it, it should have it, been felonious assault at that it, point. It almost though. seems like that would be it without the, without the substantial evidence. But, um, yeah, I don't – they could have done more. Right. And the fact that he wasn't driving also contributed to that. Because he wasn't driving, how do you get him for a high-speed chase? Right. That'd be like getting the passenger for a high-speed chase, unless they're firing shots out the side window. So it must have kind of been on still on, like, parole or something. Right. Yeah, he violated that. He violated his parole to where he's going back. Yep. So he goes back to prison, and he does his six years and five months. There's nothing trimmed off of it. There's no good behavior when you violate parole like that. Like, you're getting what you're getting. So that takes him up to 1995. During his six years 
plus that he that he's in prison, it starts off with him harassing Margaret constantly. It's letters, phone calls, and telling her that, you know, he knew Becky was out of the house by this point, but he didn't care. He was going to kill Stephen when he got back. There was nothing going to happen uh, to Becky because he wouldn't be able to find her. Well, this just freaked her out. So where she started moving like every three months, changing phone number, kids changing schools, trying to get away from everything. Well, this went on for about the first three years. And then all of a sudden, the letters and the phone calls just stopped coming. So she was like, all right, I have gotten rid of this guy. Fantastic. What she would come to find out later is the reason that this happened is because he had a new pen pal. And this lady's name was Sandra. John was 40 by this time, and he had met Sandra the same way that he had met Margaret. She sent him a letter to jail. Again, this is a mindset I feel like we need to look more into because I don't understand how you can all of a sudden just be like, I want to hook up with a jailbird. This happens all the time. If you've watched any of these documentaries of these guys in prison, I always go back to uh, how to uh, the making how to make a murder or whatever. But that dude, Stephen Avery, was always getting pen pals that were falling in love with him. Yeah, and even in the second part of it, they had the one that he actually was dating for a while that seemed like she was just in it to get on the show. Yeah, which is insane. But clearly, this is real. There's some kind of an attraction to this. So she was a full ten years younger than him. But she had said on the record multiple times she couldn't wait for him to get out from all of the letters. It was getting to the point where they were sending letters daily to each other. She felt like she knew him inside and out. He had been in bad relations before. She was the one that was going to fix him. They were going to have a great life together. Oh, that that uh, lost dog. Right. Um, so, again, within three months of being out, they're married. Within another two months, she's pregnant. This is a little bit different. He's not like he was with Rhoda. To where he's super mad because he's young and he doesn't want to have a child. Yeah, what, he's 40-something now? Yeah, to where he's he's happy about it. You know, he's, he's 40 years old. He's about to have his first actual child. And in late 98, he comes to Sandra and says, you know, I think I want a divorce. She was knocked off of her feet. She had no idea why. She, in the interviews with her, she would go on to explain that she was a completely doting wife. She was that anything that he ever needed when it came to her appearance, however she wanted, he wanted her to dress her hair, her makeup, anything that it came to that when it came to his wants and his needs, whether it was anything materially, sexually, anything that he could possibly want, how he wanted to spend holidays, everything was just the way that he wanted it. Well, see, here's the problem for, for this fella. Yeah. His whole life has not been like this. Right. And after a while, you you miss, well, I don't say you as in you, but yeah. he missed a little bit of turmoil. Yeah. This is too good. Yes. Some people can't deal with too good. Right. She would go on to make remarks about the fact that he had admitted openly to her that he had abused his previous wives and that he could not do that to her because she hadn't deserved it. And when he was a child... He got beatings that he didn't deserve, and he couldn't rationalize doing it. So Sandra is actually the one wife in here that doesn't get the physical beatings that the other ones got. The other part that's interesting about this is she's the only one that didn't try to leave him. So this abandonment rage cannot exist in this situation because he's the one that's leaving. Right. It's his decision. 
Right. So their divorce went final in June of 1999, and within just a few months, he was married again, this time to the woman that he was having an affair with. And her name was Tammy Don Tate. Now, in defense, from reports from her friends and that kind of stuff, they did not find out until shortly before his divorce went final that he was married. So this was something that she didn't know about. She confronted him about it, and he was like, hey, we were separated before you and I ever got together. Comes out to find out later that was a complete fabricated lie. He was totally married at the time. He had just moved on. So she didn't think too much of it. People that are separated get into relationships all the time to where they're in another relationship before their marriage is actually over. That's not crazy by any by any generation standards, to be honest. If there's going to be a divorce, you're back out on the market once papers are signed and you know that it's going through, right? Well, and courts are slow. Right. So, so even though she was she was heartbroken over the divorce, Sandra's, large, Sandra's largest problem with John would actually come in the form of the relationship that he had with his son, Nicholas. John would threaten to release nude photos that he had taken of Sandra during their marriage. Like, I, I'm guessing put them on the internet or sending them to people in her family and friends and stuff like that. If she didn't basically bow to everything that he wanted concerning Nicholas. To where if he wanted him four days a week, he was getting him four days a week. If he wanted him all day long on Christmas, he was getting him all day long on Christmas. At one point, she actually petitioned to have no child support as part of this, trying to keep him happy. To where, in some ways, I don't blame her, you know? Like, you, you want to make it as streamlined as possible, and you want a good situation for your son. Well, and you want a bad situation, a possible bad situation to go away. Right. Well... The breaking point on this is one weekend after spending it with his dad, Nicholas came home and he started telling his mom about this video that he watched with a woman that was naked in the movie and then daddy was naked too. Come to find out, he was showing his son a homemade sex video of him and his new wife. Jesus. Six years old. I mean, I can't even wrap my brain around it. I don't even have a comment for it. So at this point in time, she's like, all right, there's no more making you happy. She files a petition with the court, with the evidence, showing what's going on, and they actually serve a two-year court order with a two-year reserve put on it to where once the two years was up, they put the two-year reserve in place. Basically, it went to a review board, so they got uh, a four-year restraining order, which takes it from 2001 to 2005. So this takes us back to Tammy. So Tammy and John are together. Tammy, if you get a chance and you want to take uh, take a look at her, uh, a picture, there's a really nice picture of Tammy, if you if you Google her. She was like Jennifer Aniston-esque, except she had really, really dark hair and she had a little bit more of a tan. But she had that classic 90s Bob haircut, the, the pretty face, you know, well-built, super intelligent. She was the kind of guy that everybody in 1999 was trying to find. You know what I mean? Sure. The, the girl next door. And she was a person that, again had a huge personality. This part confused me again. If you've already had problems with people with big personalities, why are you going after another one? Well, uh, this guy's so fucked up. He doesn't know what he's going after. Right. I, do, I think that he's just moving on as fast as he, as fast as he possibly can. So all of her friends and, and her family would remark that she was that one person. She never missed a birthday, an anniversary, if something was going on, and she was always there to lend a hand, always wanted to make other people feel good. Well, this sounds like the type of person that 
that John is looking for because he needs to be coddled, obviously. He needs to be center of attention. Right. So not long after they're married, John starts to develop a very close relationship with her daughter, Jessie. And Jessie's nine at the time. He would take her to the park and spend endless hours playing with her in a room and playing board games and stuff. However, this quickly turned on him. Uh, he began down the same path with Becky that he had gone down previously with Jesse. I mean, he went down the same path with Jesse that he previously had with Becky. Right. Uh, he began kissing her on the mouth um, when leaving and coming, you know what I mean, to where it was weird, but, like, she didn't make too big of a deal out of the whole thing. Um, it got into a situation again where she told her mom that he was making her touch his privates. So at this point in time, she said, all right, enough's enough. I got to get you away from my daughter. And she sends her daughter to live with her maternal father. Sure. Which is a smart move. At the same time, if your daughter's got to go, maybe you need to go too. But she's trying to make her marriage work. On one visit, a couple months into the, to the new arrangement, he wasn't supposed to be around. Well, he shows up at the house and actually had her in a back room. Tammy walks in, her daughter's underwear are down and his pants are off. And it looks like he's about to rape her daughter to where she ends up stopping the whole thing, takes a beating for it, but she's able to save her daughter from actually being raped. So at that point, still trying to hold on. Uh, This guy, man, I tell you. Yeah. Her friends would also go on to give a lot more information uh, about their relationship. She said, uh, one of her good friends, Jackie, said that within a few months of being married, she started to lose a bunch of weight, which she wasn't anybody that was a, a big person to start with. So to where like she was looking unhealthy from losing weight. You know, it's not like, oh, I'm in a great relationship. We're running and working out and eating well together. This is stress-related weight loss. Gotcha. Right? Uh, she became very introverted, stopped attending any kind of get-togethers and that kind of stuff. And they would... Jackie actually said it in a way that I thought was really interesting. She said that she lost her sparkle. And as you know, there are people with infectious personalities. And I could, I understood what that meant when I, when I heard it. Sure. And the last thing, that's the last thing you want to see happen to somebody like that is to have them become so defeated that they're just not the same person that they were anymore. I mean, we've seen that at establishments before where people start um, working at a certain spot or place and they're, they're in great moods. And then after a while, Hey, yeah. Work sets in. Yep. So, <laughs> Uh, Stephen began to, to get suspicious that she was having an affair with somebody at work, which was completely fictitious. None of this was happening and made her actually get his name tattooed on her inner thigh to indeed. And he told her to indeed prove to her that she was my property. So just like in the previous relationships, as it moved forward, he would abuse Tammy constantly punches, kicks, belts, pistol whipped her on multiple occasions, which I, that's one of those things that you hear about, but I can't imagine what that's got to feel like to be pistol whipped. If she refused to have sex with her, he would rape her at gunpoint, literally holding a gun to her head during the rape. And this was not once or twice. This happened frequently. So she had an occasion where she ran into Tammy out at the store. And I mean, where Tammy ran into Jackie out of the, out of, out of the store and Jackie noticed that the right side of her face did not look right at all, that it wasn't just banged up and bruised. Like it looked like there was something that was kind of out of place with it. She said that she fell, which is the classic, you know, we've heard that ran into the door, right? Heard that a million times. 
eventually she admitted to her that he had struck her in the face with a ball peen hammer in the, God. in the middle of an argument. So Jackie decides that, Hey, I need to check in on my friend. So a couple of weeks later, she stopped by and John wasn't home. So she came in and they were doing what friends do, sitting around, drinking a cup of coffee, just BSing. He pulled up and noticed her car sitting there, walked in the house. And it sounds like it was uh, pretty small to where the bedroom was right off of the living room. But you could see in directly. He grabs Tammy by the hair, drags her into the bedroom, begins to choke her with one hand and puts the gun to her head with the other and tells Jackie that unless she wants to see her friend's brains all over the wall, that she needed to get the fuck out of his house. Jackie didn't know what to do in that moment, and she left. She didn't report it to the cops, which I was surprised to read that. If you're the friend that's going to kind of go in and do a welfare check and stop and check on them, I was surprised that she didn't go and say something to somebody about it. Yeah. After, th- after that happened. At that point, the welfare is not going so well. Right. So after this whole debacle takes place, Tammy knew that she no longer could f- trust to have a friend over, and she began to confide in her boss, uh, Candace Akins. So Candace was her manager at a place called The Action Company, and they actually made wholesale horse products. They made all kinds of bits and straps and all of the accessories that would go with it. They didn't make the actual saddles, but just all of the accessories that you would use with your horse. She would tell Candace about the abuse, and Candace would, like most people, encourage her, you know, you got to try to leave this guy, you know, and she would tell her repeatedly, he's going to kill me if I try to leave. So this brings us to October of 2004 she went to a neurologist named dr flavel and she had vision loss headaches and then he had diagnosed her as having anxiety depression and insomnia she said that she hadn't slept in almost three days and she had maybe slept three days in the last month i don't know if you've ever dealt with insomnia it's one of the strangest things you'll ever deal with nothing seems real it's a that was i mean for having all those things that was one thing that was like I don't know how you deal with everything else in life with this. Right. She told the doctor that she had fallen off of one of her horses um, because she was embarrassed to admit that she was being abused. So he ran some tests and just asked her to wait because he wanted to get the results back to make sure that this wasn't something where she needed to go actually to the emergency room. So she goes out into the waiting room and she just begins sobbing just to herself uncontrollably. Well, what she didn't know was the lady that was working the front desk her name was Joy Flavel. She was actually the doctor's wife who was filling in for the day because his normal receptionist had taken the day off work. She was an advocate for abused women and actually ran a battered woman's home. So she went over and sat and, and began discussing with her what was going on. You know, are you okay? To where she starts to open up to her. She explains to her that John had beaten her so bad that she had been blind for two days that over the course of a three hour beating, he used both fists, the belt buckle and the gun again and again until she literally couldn't see and was running into the walls of her own house, trying to get around. My God, three hours is a long time. I mean, if you want to time how long it takes, I mean, not that it's going to be three hours straight. So you do some damage and wait and see how it turns out. And then you do some damage and you wait and see how it turns out. I mean, that's sicker than sick. This guy is a piece of shit. So she said, the lady said, look, 
I can have you in a shelter right now. I can have your kids picked up. We can, we can get this taken care of. And she said, you don't understand. The only way I'm getting out of this is dead. Exactly what she told her. Later, she would end up testifying in the trial as to what their conversation had been like. And she was asked why she didn't make a phone call in and have her go with them. Under California, I mean, under Texas law, you couldn't do that. Even if she reported it, unless Tammy corroborated it and wanted it all handled that way, which basically back then for an assault, because this assault had taken place about a week prior. By the time she's at this neurologist, he's going to be out in a couple hours. So you're going to have an angry monster on the loose at that point. And Tammy didn't want to take a chance of that. So that was in October. This brings us to December 2004. Finally, enough was enough. She couldn't take the beatings anymore. So she worked with her boss, Candace, and actually borrowed some money from the company to pay for the divorce, which she filed immediately. On Christmas Day in 2004, John was at the house. They were doing Christmas with Nicholas, and he started the whole, I love you, come back to me, you know, I know that I've been bad, I'll be better, the whole schmeal, and she lost it and started screaming at him and told him to get out, that he wasn't welcome there, that divorce was filed, and that it was happening, and she even called his mom and dad. So they drove from Mississippi to Texas to pick him up. So I can't imagine what that six hours was like with him there, just waiting for them to get there. But the fact that they were on the way, they knew that the big fight had happened. I think John knows at this point, he can't do anything. His hands are tied because she had gotten to make that phone call. But without that, who knows where we end up on Christmas day. Sure. So she felt relieved once he left because now she knows that he's going back to Mississippi and her friends and coworkers remarked that after she returned from Christmas, that it was like a totally new person showed up to work. She began to be happy, vibrant again. She started attending the little get togethers and stuff that they would have. She even had a calendar that was by her desk and she circled February the 7th and a big red Sharpie because February 7th was their day in court to get everything finalized. And one lady that actually worked right beside her, she said that every morning she would get in there and she would look at it and she would repeat to herself, you're almost there. Like you're almost out of this. So this brings us to January 23rd, which is a Sunday. At this time, Tammy's back to spending some, some more time with her daughter, right? So her and Jesse are leaving church and she starts getting blown up with texts from John asking, is she really going to divorce him? Are you really going to divorce me? And this goes on and on. And it gets to the point where he just keeps sending the same text over and over again. Yes or no. Yes or no. 722 times he sends yes or no. Crazy. 700 times. I, I was like, holy cow. She didn't answer a single, a single one. No, no replies back. At about 5 p.m., the messages just stopped coming in. Shortly after the text stopped coming in, she reached out to the vice, the vice president of her company and asked if she could come over and talk to him. Not a huge company, you know, in, in, a, in north of Dallas to where they knew everybody well enough. It wasn't like a huge company where you're, where you're never going to meet a VP. You know what I mean? Right. So uh, his name was David. David said, you know what? Go ahead and come on over. We'll sit and talk about this. So 
David Young would testify later that he that Tammy was worried that something bad was going to happen to her, and she wanted to borrow some money from him directly to disappear for good where nobody could find her. Her children were with their father at this point. She had dropped them off earlier in the day to where it's just her. She spent about three hours talking with him, and he said that at the end of the conversation, she felt better. He said, look, we'll look into what we can do to possibly get you out of here, see if we can get you moved someplace else, get you set up. We can't do it tonight. It's 1030. You know, like there's nothing we can do at 1030 at night. Sounds like the kiss of death, though. Yeah. I mean, you can get on a Greyhound at any time of day. You know what I mean? So Tammy was feeling better. She felt like there was a little bit of a plan in place. You know, things had stopped to where she hadn't heard from John in hours at this point. It had been almost six hours since she'd heard from him. And she said, you know what? It's fine anyway. I've been a little under the weather, so she's going to go home and get some sleep. So she arrives back at her house right about 11 o'clock, and she called David at 11.01. And they talked for about 12 minutes. He said they were just, you know, kind of recapping and making sure she was okay and everything. And then she said she was going to get in the shower and go to bed. At 11.50, the front door to Tammy's house opened, and it was not a forced entry. John walked straight into the back bedroom where he walked in and shot Tammy in the head without warning. One shot straight to the head from about two feet away. She was actually sitting kind of propped at an angle with, with pillows, propping her up. You know how you do sometimes when you're sick, you know, because you can't lay on your back. And the bullet would actually go in through her right temple and then come out behind her left ear. So you're talking about a direct path straight through the brain. It exited through uh, behind her left ear and actually went through a window and somewhere out into the street. Uh, investigators would end up trying vigilantly to find this thing. They never found it. It could have landed on the road, skipped. Who knows where this thing could have gone. So at 11.58, Tammy called 911 from the phone that was beside the bed. And in a very low and a slurred voice, Tammy gave her address and told the police that she had been shot by Steve Gardner. Apparently, I was going to ask you, did it kill her instantly? But apparently not. No. And apparently Steve Gardner was what he went by in some circles. Some circles he went by John. But his dad's name was John. So a lot of times they said where people knew his dad, he would go by Steve whatever. And she also was able to tell them that after he shot that she saw him run out of the house and she saw him get into a white Ford pickup truck with Mississippi plates and drive off. Now the operator would say that they had, she had a really hard time hearing her as far as everything that she was saying. And because it was recorded, thank God, they actually went back to get all of the information off of it. She said repeatedly that she couldn't hear anything that, this, that the dispatcher was telling her because her ears were ringing so loud from the direct gunshot. Makes sense. At one point, um, she whispered into the phone that there's blood everywhere. And then she heard what sounded like vomiting. And then the phone cut off, just completely gone. So this bad dispatcher panicked just a little bit and she gave them the wrong address. And it ended up taking 25 minutes to get a paramedic on the scenes to where they arrived at the first address in 11 minutes to where that extra 14 minutes would actually become super crucial. When they got to the home, they had a police officer with them. Uh, they tried to get in by the doors. They tried to get through a window. So he ended up having to kick the door down. They didn't want to do this because they didn't want to mess up what would be a crime scene. But right now we're trying to get this lady out, right? 
So they entered the bedroom. Tammy was still sitting up, fighting. Totally in shock at this point. But they said that there was so much blood that they couldn't even tell if it was only coming from one place. That it basically had been strewn across the room. They actually got a medevac in within 15 minutes and they airlifted her to Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas. As soon as I read that super small side note, that's actually the hospital that they took JFK to. I was going to say, it sounded, sounded familiar. Yeah. So they took her to the hospital where she slipped into a coma immediately. For two days, she fought. And at one point they had a little bit of hope, but uh, on the second day that she was in, on the uh, 25th of January, they declared her brain dead. So the family had to make the tough decision to pull the plug on her. And for two days, because they couldn't give her anything to stop it, for two days she laid there breathing on her own. So she made it for two more days. But they said that there was nothing they could do. She was never going to make a recovery, so they pulled the plug. So this takes us back to John now. So at 8.30 Monday morning, the 24th, so this is the morning after the shooting, John pulls into his sister's house and his brother-in-law's house in the white Ford that he had borrowed from his brother-in-law to supposedly go see relatives in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He told his sister Elaine that Tammy had had an accident, and when she pressed him for answers, he just started sobbing uncontrollably. She asked if Tammy was okay, and he said, yes, she's okay. How you give that answer? Not real sure. Doesn't make any sense to me. But Elaine told him, look, you need to turn yourself in immediately. John agreed that, that he needed to do this. So he went in, took a shower, changed his clothes, and shaved, which I found that to be interesting. That I don't know why you would feel the need to take the time to shave at this point. Or, or how you even could. Right. Obviously, he doesn't have much of a conscience right. here. No, none at all. So his sister then took him to see his parents and he asked her to wait outside, which she said made her a little bit nervous that he was going to try to run. Uh, he was in there for only about 15 minutes and then he got back into the car, I mean, back into the truck and she drove him down to the Laurel police station. So he gets to, uh, gets into the police station. She goes home. Well, she gets home and the first thing that she does is she goes directly into her bedroom and sure enough, Underneath the bed is where her husband kept his 44 caliber Ruger Red Hawk. Now, this Ruger Red Hawk is a six-shot revolver. So it's not like a 9mm or, or any kind of a semi-automatic would be that, that the, the cartridge flies out after you use it. It stays in. So she rolled open the, the, the revolver and could see that there was one spent shell casing still in there. And she said that her husband... Would never do that. If he had to fire around at something, like if he was shooting at something out in the yard, always refilled it because he always wanted to have it full in case he actually needed it. So she knew right then and there that her brother had taken the gun and, and that he had fired a shot. While he was at the station, as soon as he walks in, tells him who he is, a detective Cundiff, who was from Co Collin County in Texas, where the murder actually took place, he was on the phone. And what was funny was that he had actually gotten John's cell phone number at five o'clock in the morning from John's dad. They tracked his parents down that quickly, got a landline, called his dad. John Sr. gave the investigator his cell phone number. So he calls him at 515 and he says, hey, this is investigator Cundiff. I got some questions for you. Click. So this is while he's in mid drive back to Laurel, Mississippi. So 
once they've got him, got him in the Laurel Police Department, they said that they wanted they had want him to answer some questions. So he's like, okay, let's answer some questions. Well, Cundiff already had evidence back that they had three receipts from his credit card from within two miles of Tammy's house. One, one was at a gas station, one was at a restaurant, one was at a, uh, a shopping center, to where they already knew that he had been there. So he lied about the fact that he, that he was there. And when, he asked, when they asked him what had, what had happened to Tammy, he said, I'm not sure you're going to have to ask her, which I thought was kind of a, a ridiculous thing to say. Important thing to note here is he gets extradited back to Texas and he's given a capital murder charge, right? So I, don't, I didn't know this before now, but in order, in order to get a capital murder charge, you have to commit a murder while also committing another crime simultaneously. If you don't, instead of capital murder, the highest it can be is murder one. Interesting. I didn't know that there was a difference between murder one and capital murder until I read that. This was kind of problematic because he literally came in the house, fired a shot, and left. So what other crime are you going for at that point? So immediately, his lawyers start arguing, hey, this clearly cannot be capital murder. The best that you can do is murder one, which carries a maximum of life. That's it. You can't get us for a capital on this. They would say that emotion was the only thing that contributed to him pulling the trigger. The fact that he was about to lose his marriage. So the prosecutor had to get a little bit creative here. And what he said was that because she had already filed for the divorce, that he was actually obstructing justice because he was stopping a hearing from happening by killing one of the two parties involved. So I thought that was an interesting way of doing it. The reason that he's killing her in the first place is because of that hearing that's coming up, but that hearing is going to be the thing that makes it to where they can charge him the way he should be charged. Correct. I thought that the, I just thought that that was kind of a little bit of irony mixed in the middle of it. Yeah, for sure. So his defense team basically threw up their hands. Like once that was put in place, it was a very short trial. It was less than two weeks long for a capital murder trial. That's lightning. Oh yeah. Less than, less than two weeks. There was less than 50 pieces of evidence that were brought in. The only piece of physical evidence that they had was um, some fibers from a night coat that she had uh, had on that they had found on some of the clothing that he had changed. His sister was actually smart enough to keep his clothing separate because she had a feeling that they were going to want those clothes that he had on from when he was there. So good on the sister. Yeah, that's you know for quick thinking there. Right, for trying to make sure that she was doing the right thing. So on November the 4th, 2006 is when he is convicted of capital murder, capital murder and obstruction of justice and sentenced to death. And his appeals was when the abandonment rage reared its ugly head. And they basically tried to blame everything on his dad and his mom. And it's not uncommon. I mean, I think we've seen this in 90% of the cases that we've covered with these people. It always comes back to somebody else's fault that somebody else abused them. The jury wasn't hearing it. And part of the reason for this is because, and I was surprised that this was allowed. They actually were able to give all of the details of the crimes involving Rhoda to the jury. So I was kind of surprised that that was allowed because it didn't have anything to do with this particular case. But they basically said that it had to do with the temperament and character in which he carried himself with. So everything got overturned. 
he went through his entire process. He exhausted every appeal that he could possibly go through. Uh, 13 years and two months was the was the amount of time that he spent on death row. So it didn't end up being a 30-year case, which was great. It is great. I mean, everything else was moving kind of quick. Why not this? Exactly. So this moves us up to yesterday, which, if you're listening to this on Friday, was two days ago. But this takes us up to the 15th of January, 2020. Took a little while to find, but his final meal was early in the morning. They brought it to him at 3.30 in the morning, and he had a standard prison breakfast, but they offered they offered and gave him six extra pieces of bacon, an extra biscuit, and an extra cup of orange juice. Hmm. Do we know how old he was at this point? Um, he would have been 64. At the at the time of his uh, at the time of his execution, time of his demise. Yeah, uh, his final words. I'm not going to give you all of them. He actually would go on on a little bit of a monologue. the 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 highlights of the of the monologue was, I know that you cannot forgive me, but I hope that one day you will. He thanked his friends that had all been corresponding with him via emails, phone. You know, at this point, and he said. I want to see the Lord Jesus so bad. I hope you all understand. So clearly he had found his jailhouse Jesus while he was in there. So yep. he was moved from the prison where he was being held over to Huntsville, which is where the execution chamber is in Texas. At six o'clock, he was strapped into the gurney. The curtains were open at six ten, And after a lengthy monologue, that I just mentioned where he talked about regrets and causing pain. Uh, most of it was about Jesus. Uh, he asked for forgiveness multiple times from the family and said that he knew that he'd been forgiven by God to where he had no other forgiveness to ask for. Finally at six twenty, So that's about as long as you're going to see 10 minutes after the curtains open before they start pushing uh, six twenty, they go ahead and push the, the medications they would say that he had extremely labored breath most of the way through this, which is not completely common. It's not completely uncommon, but you don't see this in every single person that basically it was labored the entire time. And then at 633, his chest stopped moving. But what was weird, and I'm sure that this is going to end up coming up in other cases now moving forward, is his right hand had a little bit of a twitch still to it to where what they're going to come out and say is that the nerves that, that the one drug was supposed to be completely shutting down on some level was ineffective because he, he had something that was still firing, right? This was for three minutes, and at 6.36, he was pronounced dead. I that, mean, it doesn't bother me if we have to sit here for another 10 minutes wait for this guy to die. No. So they had about 150 protesters outside trying to trying to get it stopped. Uh, one of the things that they tried to say was that uh, because he was a diabetic and he had to have his left leg amputated from the knee down, that you shouldn't be able to execute an amputee, which I didn't understand what the logic was who, in that. Who is arguing this stuff? I don't know. I mean, people that just have nothing better to do, the guy deserved this. Yes. And, and you're going to say, because we had to amputate his leg, we can't. you can't kill him? What? People are crazy. It is crazy. I mean, you think about the number of people that he actually hurt is staggering. And these are just the ones that we know about. Who knows what other things this guy could have done throughout his life? I mean, it's all bad, right? right. It's all bad. But the fact that the, the part where he's hitting somebody in the side of the face until they go blind, I mean, 
for three hours. Right. I mean, if anything was as bad as that, other than the killing, this guy is just a piece of shit. Yeah. And and they want to save him all the way around. And and I thought about that aspect of it. You can't fault Tammy even after that for not going to the police because she's got a date on a calendar. She's that close to where if she gets him sent to jail, like I said, you know, he ends up out. Things are much, much worse at that point. You know what I mean? Just get him out of your life. And, and that's what she was really trying to do. So that is the execution of John Stephen Gardner. I actually, side note, found that there was a multi- homicide murderer from California exact same name so stay away from the John Gardners if you're out there got it so have a, co- a couple quick questions and then we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up here so the, the first question is kind of broad but I feel like when we look at these cases we keep learning more and more things how does this guy get away with so much abuse without getting Incredible jail time. I mean, we're, you're talking about him messing with children. He killed his first wife, all the menacing that he did, killed an unborn child. I mean, how does this guy end up with so little actual I mean, he served eight years and five months total before he ended up going in and ended up on death row for all of that. I think it's a, that the, the, it's a sign of the times, and I think I said that when we first t- t- uh, talked about the, right. the child. I said if that happened now, he'd be, he'd be getting uh, time for – Two slangs. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the sign of the times. I think the uh, the physical abuse that he was doing to the mothers and the daughters, mm-hmm. um, pretty sure that's all on the moms. Because if you're not turning him in for this shit, he's never getting in trouble for it. Okay. Um, other than that, I don't really know what else to say. Well, the other one that I would... But <clears throat> the one last part of that, of people that were affected, when you get a court order that your husband, your ex-husband, cannot see your son because he's showing him homemade pornography. Sure. How is he not up on charges for that? How, not just, hey, you can't see your son. How, how is that not charges immediately? I can tell you why. Because they were so afraid of this guy. They thought if they did that, he's probably going to flip out and do something. But you think the court was afraid of him? Because the, 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 the court, if, they, if that's what they made their ruling on, they should have been able to press criminal charges immediately. Yeah, but the courts don't usually press charges. It's usually the involvees. They probably said, do you want to press charges on him? Mm, I don't know. Maybe no, no, not. No, there, a situation like that, a normal citizen doesn't get to make that call. Like, if you punch me in the face, I have that call as an adult if I want to have you charged with assault. Sure. When it comes to a, a child like this. They can't make their own decision. Right. right. And, and, a, and a parent doesn't get to make that call either. At least in most states and most well, circumstances. Then, then that's a great question. I just I was surprised that he wasn't given some kind of jail time for that right there. So I thought that that was kind of crazy. One of the things I do have to ask, I don't disagree with what happened here, but do you think that given the way that the capital murder threshold is explained now, do you feel like this actually met the criteria or like they just kind of bent the rule to get what they wanted? The way you described it, it sounds like they bent it, but... I don't know. It does. It seems like a kind of a funny requirement. Yeah. Well, I thought it was funny reading it just because how many people Texas executes. Right. So all of these people 
are killing multiple people. I mean, I mean, are committing another mm-hmm. crime at the same time. Yeah, but the other crime could be speeding. I'm sure. I mean, who knows? I, I don't know. I, I think it's stupid. I think if if you have a uh, a court system that we can hand out capital punishment, capital punishments. Yeah, I think that it should be nothing more than the eye for the eye. If you kill somebody, you could be tried for capital punishment. I mean, I agree. I, I it, should, it shouldn't take any more than that. So I can walk down the street and shoot somebody in Texas and continue to walk, and I'm going to get life in prison, possibly. Right. Because I didn't do anything else. Right. Right. Unless, unless like I said, they drum up a, a secondary charge. Yeah. Conceal, like I, I didn't have my concealed carry. Right. Something yeah. like that. Right. To where I just, I think it's a statute that needs to be changed. I feel like, I feel like it's an old law that might have used to pertain to something. Well, it sounds and like they this could probably, day and age we've we've outgrown that portion of that of that law. They could probably bend it in any way if they see fit. Yeah. So I, oh, his tags weren't up to date on his car. Yeah, it was a crime. Exactly. To where I, I don't. I just think it needs to be changed. Sure. I'm I'm all about agreed. When we get to this part of it, you know, sometimes we have to look at changes that we would like to see made in the system, and that would definitely be one for me. Sure. Um, question three. Um, I didn't mention this in the show, but half of the women that are married that are murdered in Texas are killed by an estranged lover or husband, boyfriend, whoever they are. The number is actually 62% of the women murdered in the state of Texas that that's who murders them. Is there anything that the state should be doing to start mitigating this problem? I, mean, I don't know exactly how you do it. I, I thought about it for for probably a, a good two, three hours trying to figure out is there a system or something that we can do to, to help these people so that it doesn't happen. Well, I would say we would lean back on our mental health yeah. uh, stance is try to get these people as much mental health. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't understand why these men are going after these women in Texas. Texas is notorious for executing people. I agree with that. Why, what are you doing? Right. I'm going to tell you what. If Ohio was, if I was a, a, a somebody like one of these people that you want to cause physical harm, or I'm out there, uh, I don't know, want to say gang banging, gang banging, but or or just maybe a low level thief or thug. Yeah. I would. If it was Ohio with all these strict rules, mm-hmm. I would not. I would stop doing or move somewhere else. I don't disagree at all. And one of the one of the things that I found kind of crazy about this is that this was in Collin County, Texas. Out of the 1,513 that we're up to now, 22 of them have been from Collin County, Texas. And they have nine more that are currently on death row. So one, one uh, thing you could pull out of that is it's a bad place. Yeah. And two. I mean, they ain't taking no prisoners. It's like. If you do Why are it, you committing murders in Collin County? I mean, I, I would stay as far away from there as possible if I had an issue like that. The other thing that was funny, and not funny, haha, just strange, is uh, the fact that Mississippi let him off so light. I know that we touched on it just a second ago, but Mississippi is like little Texas when it comes to this. I mean, they're right up there with them for executions. They're, they're one of the still active states that's still going, and they are notoriously hard on these kind of things. I was surprised that— That was the one that gave him eight years? Yeah, I was surprised that it wasn't stronger than that. See, I'm going to tell you a quick, real, a quick little story here. Yeah. So I know a family, or one of my wife's cousins, his best friend, uh, 
drove home drunk, head-on collision, killed the mom and the dad in the front seat. Oh. Left the little girl alive that lived in the back. Um, my my wife's mother, my mother-in-law, taught this little girl in kindergarten. She was a, an aide, so she could see the pain on this little girl's face every single day after this. And that guy only got 10 years. Really? Now, that wasn't that long ago. I'm going to say 15 years ago. Driving drunk, killed two people, and got 10 in years. In Springfield, Ohio. Really? Yeah, and he's out now. But, uh, yeah, I totally. It, it's two lives. and. Gone. And I think if that happened now, he'd probably get about 40 years. Oh, if not more. So, But that was only 15 years ago. Yeah. So. That's crazy. A lot, lot has changed. I feel like it needs to keep changing, though. Like, I, I think that our prison system obviously needs some updates along the way. But really, the, the systems where we decide who dies and who gets life and who gets 10 years, I feel like this needs to be reexamined on some level. I mean taking a life whether it's an accident or not it's got to be stiffer than 10 years but guys like this immediately it's soon, it's soon, we know that he did it there's no question that, that he did it she made the phone call that you know literally as she's dying she's making the phone call you know the sister puts to, two and two together there's one shell missing or one one bullet right i mean like you've talked about before like if there was ever a case that was made for the fast pass yeah. like this guy should be getting the fast pass well, he did pretty much. Yeah. Con- considering some of these other cases. I mean, right. Considering 13 years compared to 30 or 35. So, and then ultimately, was justice served in this case? Absolutely. I agree 100%. So, we look forward to hearing your comments on this. You can reach us at thegalloswpod at gmail.com if you have an email for us. You can also go to thegalloswpodcast.com if you want to check out any of our other episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at, at gallowspodcast. So get on there, give us some comments, let us know what's going on. I also want to make sure that we mention, as always, in this case, as is represented in so many of them that we do, clearly there is a mental health issue going on here. If you or somebody you love has a mental health issue crisis that you feel that you need help please call 1-800-622-HELP before it's too late yes so if you are having bad thoughts about hurting yourself or others please call the number we appreciate it thank you so much for joining us tonight we look forward to talking with you again soon stay safe out there